This is the second sermon or message in a what should be a six-week series on our corporate worship, our worship together. That is to say, what we do on Sunday mornings and why we do it. Um, just as a, as a reminder to go back to last week, remember there were at least two things that we said um, we needed to be mindful of and, um, and continue to carry with us as we come and gather every Sunday, uh, as we even think through this series, one thing that should be uh, at least an undercurrent running through all of this, right? at least two things. One, that all of our worship in whatever form or whatever shape it takes ought to be biblical. Right? That is, that rather than um, asking, well, is there anything wrong with this? We ought to be asking, is there anything right with this? Right? Has the Lord directed us to worship in this way? And if he has, well, that's what we want to do. And so we spent last week looking at the reason, the biblical reasons that we have a call to worship that starts the beginning of our service. We also want to keep in mind that as we go through here, not only does, does our worship need to be biblical, it needs to be informed and shaped by the way that God has spoken to us through his word, but we also want to recognize and understand that worship itself is formative. Much of the way that we think of, of worship, we think in terms of, um, of an outlet for our expression, right? We want to express something, or we want something expressed to us in a way that seems meaningful. And we oftentimes do not take into account the fact that what we do, the way that we do it, right, actually forms and shapes us. There is the expressive element or aspect to worship. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Worship ought to be genuine and heartfelt, and there ought to be joy and gladness when called for and when appropriate, but we want to recognize that the Lord has given us his word to direct us in our worship because who we worship and how we worship does shape and form us as people. So this morning what we're looking at, the element of our worship service, what we do when we gather together, we're going from last week's call to worship to the idea that we sing together. Right? Probably there are at least two types of people here when they hear that. Uh, one type says, well, I can check out right away because I've got no issues with us singing in a church service. Of course we sing, right? And then there are other people who perhaps are tempted to sit on the edge of their, I was going to say seat, the edge of their pew because they're waiting for some sort of resurrection of the worship wars to come back. That's not going to happen. Let me say, though, just as a way to sort of set the tone for, for what we're doing this morning, that we want to be careful about the way that we think about our singing in terms of its proportion or the role that it plays in our gathered worship. By, and by that, I mean something like this. When, when we come in on Sunday morning, we do our welcome and announcements up front. Remember, because our worship service proper, right, our time of worship together actually begins with the call to worship. When we hear the word of the Lord spoken, calling us to himself, calling us to praise, that is the moment in time in which we can say that we are coming to worship. 
But because of the way the service is ordered, and there's nothing wrong with this. Don't, don't misunderstand. This is not a critical statement. I'm just making an observation and saying beware of this. Because what you hear at the beginning is a call to worship, and then what happens after the call to worship? What do we do after that? We sing. All right? It's easy to think or to be perhaps unconsciously lulled into the thought that that's what worship is, that worship is singing. Worship equals singing. Singing equals worship. And what we want to say is, is that everything that we do in this service is an element or is a part of worship. In other words, singing is certainly a part of worship, but it's not all of worship. So work really hard to sort of dislodge in your mind or in your habit of speaking even the tendency to just sort of use interchangeably or synonymously the idea that you have worship, which is singing, and then everything else, right? Like we're going to come and worship, which means we're going to sing, and then after we're done worshiping, we're going to listen to a sermon. As if the sermon is not part of our worship. So if you grab some of the notes coming in, on the back side of the, the, the notes, the little skeletal outline, there's a paragraph from J.I. Packer in his little book, Concise Theology. Very, very helpful book. If you're looking for one, just gives a, a couple pages here or there on various doctrines that help flesh some things out. And listen to the way that Packer describes or defines and describes worship. Worship in the Bible is the due response of rational creatures to the self-revelation of their creator. Even that sentence is extremely helpful. Worship is our response to who God is and to what he's done. Worship in the Bible is the due response of rational creatures to the self-revelation of their creator. It is an honoring and glorifying of God by gratefully offering back to him all the good gifts and all the knowledge of his greatness and graciousness that he has given. It involves praising him for what he is, thanking him for what he has done, desiring him to get himself more glory by further acts of mercy, judgment, and power, and trusting him with our concern for our own and others' future well-being. He goes on, learning from God is worship too. Attention to his word of instruction honors him. Inattention is an insult. Acceptable worship requires clean hands and a pure heart, and a willingness to express one's devotion in works of service as well as in words of adoration. All right, now, now that's sort of a, a mouthful. It's good to have it in writing so that you can refer back to it, but basically let me try to tell you what, what Packer is saying there is that worship is essentially all of life, not just when you're singing in life. So think with me if you will, for example, Romans 12.1. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your spiritual act of worship. Did you hear that? What you do with your body, 
the way that you conduct yourself, the way that you move in and out of the office through the work week or at home or in the classroom, what you participate in, what you don't participate in, what you do in this physical, material body that the Lord has given you is an act of worship. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Just briefly, look at verses 15 and 16. Hebrews 13, 15 and 16. Through him then, Hebrews 13, 15, through him, that is through Christ then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So that would easily cover what we do when we sing, right? The fruit of our lips, what we, what we say, what we sing. But then notice in the next verse, verse 16, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Using Old Testament language, the author of Hebrews says that one of the ways that we engage in worship is through the sacrifice of praise. What we say and what we sing. Another way that we engage in worship is through the sacrifice of serving one another. So is singing, is our time in song together a part of our worship? Yes, it most certainly is, and a crucial, essential, vital part of our worship. But is our time singing together, is that all of our worship together? Certainly not. Not only is it not all of our worship when we're together gathered on a Sunday morning, it certainly is not all of your personal individual worship when you go out from here to move in those areas that the Lord has given you to serve and to act as a witness. Back to singing. Some of you may be here, and you may be new to the church. Not just this church, but just the church in general. Or new to a new Christian. And it has struck you as a little odd, or perhaps even weird, that these Christians are always singing. Why do they do that? That's not what I do Monday through Saturday, I don't walk around singing to people all the time, right? Hands over shoulders, swaying back. Why are Christians always doing that? Right? Well, for you, let me, let me share with you why it is that when you come to a gathering of Christians, you will often hear us sing. And then let me also say, for those of you who are Christians who need the reminder, here is why we sing. Don't forget. Number one... We sing because God has commanded us to sing. Most of you probably do not need to be persuaded about this, so I'll try to keep this run of verses fairly brief and fairly short. But just a sampling, Old Testament and New Testament. Of course, the Psalms is riddled with calls and commands to sing and to praise. Psalm 47, 6 and 7. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. Psalm 90, verse 14. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. 
Psalm 98, 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. Psalm 105, 1 and 2. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Psalm 119, 172. Let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, verses that we'll look at in more detail in just a few moments. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is disorder or dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, or be filled by the Spirit, I should say. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And James 5, 13, is anyone among you suffering? He must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. One of the reasons that we sing is because we've been commanded to sing. God calls us to worship, and when he calls us to worship him, one of the ways, one of the means by which he has given us to worship him is through song. Another reason that we sing is because we're compelled to sing. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. And then we're going to skip from Exodus 15 to Revelation 14 and 15. So in Exodus 14, God has just parted the Red Sea, led the Israelites across, walking on dry land. Their enemy, the Egyptians, pursued them, and the Lord caused the water to crash down on the Egyptians and destroyed the Egyptian army. And they're standing on the other side, having just been miraculously delivered from their enemy. And what do the people do? Exodus 15, 1. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. Turn to Revelation 14. Look at verses 1 through 3. Revelation 14, 1 through 3. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. In the next chapter, in Revelation 15, start with me at verse 2. 
And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses. Isn't that interesting? They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. God's people in the Old Testament are delivered from their bondage and slavery. Their enemy is destroyed. They will never have to worry about them again. This freedom and liberty that God has accomplished for them is settled and permanent. And what do his people do in Exodus 15? They sing the praises of the God who saved them. John is given the privilege of seeing visions of heaven and of the eternal glory that is to become ours as the people of God. And what does he see? The redeemed and the angels and the elders and the living creatures doing as they gather around the throne. He finds them and hears them singing. And as if to make sure that we don't miss the point, in, in Revelation 15... John says that they sang the song of Moses, meaning that we're to see continuity, a line running from beginning to end. This is what God's people did when they were saved in the Old Testament. They sang. This is what God's new covenant people do when they know that they have been saved. They sing. If you don't feel like singing, I'm not talking about if you're good at singing, right? There are not, probably not many of us who we would say are good at singing. I'm not talking about whether you're good at singing or not. I'm talking about feeling like singing or finding reason to sing. If you never feel like singing to the Lord with his people, if you find it hard to find reason to sing to the Lord, even if you may not feel like it, you at least ought to be able to find reason to sing if you find it difficult to feel like singing or to find reason to sing, let me suggest to you very graciously and kindly that maybe you have not reflected long enough on the salvation that is yours in Christ. Maybe you do not truly know and understand to the degree that you ought just how deep your sin runs. Just how corrupt your human nature is apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to give you a new heart and new mind. Maybe you do not consider enough how undeserving you are of the riches of his kindness in grace through Jesus Christ. To know the greatness of God 
and the God who saves us, to know that you have been saved is to want to sing. The command is there. That ought to be reason enough. But all through Scripture we see that when God's people truly catch even a glimpse of what he has done, they find a compulsion in them to sing that they cannot resist. So we're commanded to sing. We're compelled to sing if we know anything about the salvation that we enjoy. And then one last thing, something that I'd never really considered before until spending more time in the Word myself. It's like this has been there the whole time. How did I say this? Right? We sing because we want to imitate Jesus. Jesus sang. Did you know that? Jesus sang. Jesus sings present tense, and will sing still in the future. In Matthew 26, you don't need to turn there right now, but in Matthew 26, 30, after Jesus and his disciples have shared the Last Supper together, this last Passover meal, Matthew and Mark both tell us that after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus sang with his disciples. It probably was not pretty considering who his disciples were, but he sang. And by the way, Jesus sang before he left the room to go to the Mount of Olives, knowing that when he went to the Mount of Olives, he was going to be betrayed and handed over for crucifixion. In the moments before he was betrayed and darkness fell, Jesus was singing. And then do turn to Hebrews chapter 2, because I, I do want you to see this for yourself. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. Actually, start with me at verse 11, Hebrews 2.11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That is, Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Because he shares our human nature. He identifies with us. But look at what it says. He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Who, in Hebrews 2.12, is the one who is the I? Who is the one who is saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers? Jesus is. It's an old test. It's from Psalm 22. And the author is saying, this is what Jesus does. Because of his work of salvation, he proclaims the name of his father to his brothers. He makes his name known, John 17, 2 and 3. 
but also in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I don't know if this is the way that it's going to happen, but let me at least suggest one way that one op- option possibility that this opens up. If in Hebrews 2.12, the Son, Jesus, is said to sing in the midst of the congregation. The congregation is the group, the gathering of the people whom he has saved. It is entirely possible that one of the things that we are going to hear when we finally see Jesus face to face is Jesus singing. That we may actually stand and listen to Jesus sing himself about the salvation that he accomplished for this mass of people that he saved according to the will of his Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus sang during his earthly ministry, if he still sings over his people, And for his people, if at the end of the day when all of his people are gathered in, he is going to sing in our presence, there is no reason that we ought not to be singing to. Singing is biblical. When we gather together, we ought to sing because God commands us to sing because we're compelled to sing, and because we want to be conformed to the image of Christ, and Christ himself sings. By the way, just, just one other side note. The, one of the things that's, that sometimes sits uneasy with us is the fact that God would command people to praise him. Right? Because we think, well, if I ever did that, Right, walked into my home, told my wife and my kids, listen up, you people better start respecting me. You better start giving me my due, right? How would that go over? Well, one, not well. I'll just go ahead and tell you, not well. But two, be very off-putting. Not only do I, do I not deserve to take that kind of attitude or position with anyone, right? It says something odd about my heart and mind that I would go around demanding that people respect and honor me. So is it odd or weird that God commands his people to honor and respect him? Well, no. I, I mean, simple answer, right? No, it's not because God has done it, so it, it's right. But here's why. One, because God is God. That's one reason that he commands us to praise him, because God is the one who ought to be praised. But here's here's the other thing, one thing that we easily miss and overlook. God has wired us, people. He has wired us in such a way that when we find something good or great, what do we always want to do? We always want to give some sort of expression or statement about what it is that we delight in. You see a great movie, what do you do? You tell your coworkers about this movie that you just saw. Oh, you got to go see it. 
You find the girl of your dreams, what do you do? You start telling all your buddies about it. You see a great game in the playoffs, what do you do? You're talking about it when you get together with other people. You, there is something in us that compels us, that wants to find expression to the things that we enjoy. Have you ever thought or considered that it's more than just simply the fact that God deserves our praise, but that his command for his people to praise him is itself, once again, an act of kindness on his part because he knows that he has wired us and made us in such a way that our joy and delight in him will be maximized when we give expression to it. So that the praise is not simply for him as if he needed it or would be lonely without it, but the reason that he commands his people to praise is because he knows that it's good for us. And that's how good and great he is. He gives us ways to maximize and deepen our joy and our delight in Him. And one of the ways that we do that is through song. We would be foolish not to try to make the most of the joy that God holds open and offers to His people. That's singing. So we're right to sing. Everyone agreed? We're good? Right? It's right and good for us to sing. Number two. If singing in and of itself is biblical, which it is, both personally and corporately together, we do want to say something about the uniqueness of singing together as a congregation. So number two, congregational singing is for one another. That seems somewhat redundant, but it needs to be stressed. What we do when we sing together is not exactly the same thing that we do when we sing in the car or in the shower or when we're walking or listening to the radio. It's, it, there are commonalities, but there is something unique about God's people gathering together to sing and the reasons that they sing together. So here's what you need to do. Two places, and they're just a few pages apart, Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, and Colossians 3.16. We'll start with the Ephesians 5 passage. Ephesians 5.18 and 19. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit. And then I think verses 19 and following say something about the results or what happens when the, the Spirit is filling us with the fullness of Christ. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. All right, so, so let, me, let me ask this question. In certain spiritual gatherings or church services or, you know, songs of praise and stuff like that, sometimes a song leader will say something like, we're singing to an audience of one. Have you ever heard that phrase before? All right, some of you have. We're singing to an audience of one. For all intents and purposes, we, 
we get the point we can grant that, right? Where our praises are being directed to the Lord. But in light of Ephesians 5.19, is that entirely accurate? What are we doing, according to Ephesians 5.19, when we're singing? We're speaking to one another. We're speaking to one another in the form of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that when you come here and gather together with your brothers and sisters to sing, that your singing is not just for you? Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, which we'll look at in a minute, will totally change the way that you think about singing as a congregation. And in many ways, it is the death blow to much of the bickering and the arguing that can take place over music. Because when you come and when you say, the, the Lord himself has said that he gathers us together to sing so that we can speak and be heard by one another, then I have to begin to think that what I'm doing is not simply about what I prefer or what I want. My singing is, yes, directed to the Lord, but it's directed to the Lord for the benefit of my brother and sister. I ought to be thinking not just about the Lord whom I'm praising, but about the good that will come to my neighbor from my singing. For example, some of you may have entered into the sanctuary this morning dealing with a very deep loss. And it is difficult, if not impossible, for you to be able to sing some of the songs that were sung this morning because you are struggling through whatever sorrow or loss you're encountering right now. It's good for you to be here even if you find it difficult to sing because your brothers and sisters are singing for you. Because your brothers and sisters are singing to you. As a way to say, contrary to what you may feel or what the evidence seems to be right now, these things are true about God he is holy. He does not make mistakes. He is good. He does save. He has given promises. He's faithful. And if you're not in that position, you come in lighthearted and happy, rejoicing in the work that the Lord is doing in your life in this particular season, praise the Lord. That is a good thing. But do keep in mind that one of the things that you're doing as you're coming here as you praise the Lord for His goodness is that you are singing on behalf of your brother or sister who is grieving right now because of a test or a trial. Or you may have in your midst someone who is battling with sin and temptation. 
And it has been one punch after another all through the week as they've tried to kill this sin that continues to rear its head. And they've succumbed to it again. And they have very little hope or reason to believe that they'll ever get past this sin that plagues them. How good it is for them to hear brothers and sisters singing about the faithfulness of God. To hear that all whom he saves, he will bring home and he will glorify. To be reminded of the fact that there is coming a day when not only the power of sin will be done away with, but the very presence of sin will be eradicated. And it is not time to give up yet. If you are a young adult, let's broaden this out a little bit. If you are, let's say, not quite 40, <laughs> all right? I know that's under 40 is not young adult, but we'll just say, we'll say 40 is the line of demarcation. You've got younger and you've got older, all right? You come into a gathering like this and you say to yourself, you would never say this out loud, right? Goodness, these songs are so old. These songs are songs that my grandparents sang. Yes. They are songs that your grandparents sang. If you are under 40, have you looked around? You are gathered together with people who are of grandparent age. Your singing and praising is not merely to the Lord, but you are singing in language and in a context that will minister to people who are more than twice your age. That's a gift to them. It's an act of love and kindness. Not to mention the fact, those of you who are younger than 40, that there is a reason that some things stand the test of time, like good literature, good songs, God's word, is because it's been tested and tried and shown to be good and reliable and true. Newer is not always truer. Newer is not always better. Now, can we flip that? Because some of our older 40 and those of us with graying hair or gray hair altogether might have been a little too comfortable and smug when they heard that dressing down. It wasn't a dressing down. It was an encouragement, right? So those of us who are over 40, perhaps, come in sometimes and we hear a song that we don't know. Where are these songs coming from? If Amazing Grace was good enough for Paul, why is it not good enough for us? Right? That sort of thing. Why, why all this newfangled music? 
Well, have you looked around? Do you know and recognize that there are people younger than you gathered together to sing the praises of the God who saved us? And that when you sing these songs that maybe you are not so familiar with, but that you can learn, or that you don't prefer, that one of the things that you're doing is that you are singing in love and as a service and ministry to those who are younger than you because you are speaking to them in perhaps newer language than what you are accustomed to for their benefit and for their growth. The church is going to outlast every one of us unless the Lord comes back. It is a good thing that every generation of God's people are finding new ways to sing old truths. And because this is the makeup of the congregation, of the people who are gathered here, that ought to be reflected in the way that we sing because we are praising the Lord for the benefit of our brother and sister. Go to Colossians 3.16. By the way, this verse runs parallel to Ephesians 5.18 and 19. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God do you see the way that Ephesians 5:18 and 19 complements Colossians 3:16 Ephesians 5:18 says to be filled by the spirit speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. So that taken together, one of the reasons that we sing is because the Spirit is leading us to sing together, to speak to one another, and because as the word gets deep into our hearts and into our minds, the word comes out in song so that we can teach and instruct one another. In light of what Paul says here in Colossians 3.16, we need to consider the fact, or we need to realize, actually, that singing is one of the ways that we disciple one another. If we were to gather on a Sunday morning and there were to be no sermon. Stop smiling. Some of you cracked a smile. Right? You're thinking, oh, what a glorious day. Right? If there were to be no sermon and there were to be only song, only singing, what would someone walk out of this service knowing about the Lord based on the songs that we sing? Would they know something, maybe not everything, but would they know something true about the Lord and the work that he's done? Or would they know nothing but sentimental drivel? 
We teach through the spoken word, and we correct and we encourage. But we also teach and correct and encourage through the sung word as well. So let's close on three things. These are more of the practical bent. Three questions or criteria, we might say, that we ought to use when we think about our singing together. And let me just say, these, these three categories or these three criteria are things that, that the, the elders, in one shape or form, we discuss frequently. I won't say constantly, but we are always coming back to this in one way or another. As we're planning services, as we're talking about the, the health of the body, three criteria. Number one, when we are thinking about our, the songs that we sing together, we want to consider the content. We want to ask, we want to know that everything that we sing has biblical content, is rich in doctrine. That doesn't mean that the song has to quote verbatim what you find in the scriptures, although that would not be bad. But it is to say that just as in a sermon we take God's word and we work out the implications, the truths, to explain further what we find in the scriptures, that's what our songs ought to do. Our songs ought to be the kind of music or ought to have the kind of content that we could go from the lyrics to the song and draw a straight line back to scripture and say here's where you find that truth in God's word we're merely singing what God has already revealed to us and let me say a little bit further not only should the content of our songs be biblical right it ought to be clear and specific Some of the singing that is done from time to time runs the risk of being so broad and so vague or ambiguous that it means almost nothing. Where essentially you sing a song and you are inviting the people who sing to essentially take that song like putty and just sort of shape it into whatever object or whatever truth you want it to be. Right? Who's to say what the sign? Well, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? Right? The problem with putty songs is that they're not much good when life gets hard. Because when you start to get pulled and you reach and you grab for something that you can hold on to, Right? You want your mind and your heart to go back to eternal truths, and so you draw on music and on song that has so effectively worked those truths into your heart. If all you have is putty in the form of music to hold on to, putty stretches and then it breaks. It gives way. Putty is not something that you can stand on. What you want to be building your life on, you want something solid and firm. You want rocks. You want cinder blocks. You want something heavy that when you drop it into your heart, it is there and it's not moving. You don't have to wonder what this is saying about God or what this says that God is going to do. You know because you've been singing, this is who God is and this is what he does. 
God is clear in his word as to who he is and what he's done. We ought to be clear and specific in our singing as well. So we need to ask about content. Is the content biblical? Is it clear? Is it solid? Can we draw a straight line from the content, from the lyrics, back to the truth of Scripture? Number two, we want to ask about the music itself. Is it singable? Would be one question to ask. Listen, there are a ton... We, we are not short of options in the English-speaking world when it comes to Christian music or literature, right? There are a ton of things out there that you can draw on for music that is good and edifying music, but for one reason or another would not be a good fit in congregational singing because the tempo is too fast or because the range is too expansive, and some of us poor people just don't have the pipes to be able to sing like that. Or because the rhythm is odd, it has syncopation in it, and we're just getting used to a 4-4, and then all of a sudden you go to a 3-4 or a 2-20 or whatever it is that music people talk about, right? It's just not going to work. People aren't going to be able to do it. You don't want half of your people singing this song and half fumbling over their words. You want all of God's people singing together a song that they can all manage together. Is it singable? You might also then go and ask, does the music itself fit the content of the song? If you're singing a song about the heaviness of this life, but it's set to a tune that makes you want to tap your feet or whistle, that probably is a bad match. You don't want lighthearted music going with a very heavy song for people who are going through the valley of life right now. At the same time, when you are celebrating and singing from the mountaintop, God's grace and goodness with joy and delight, it doesn't need to sound like a funeral dirge. The music ought to, in some way, as best we can, and nobody's perfect, don't misunderstand, but as best we can, not only do we want the music to be singable so that we can share in the truth that we're singing, but we want it to match what we're singing. And then number three, we need to consider the content of what we sing, we need to consider the music that goes with what we sing, and then, I don't know how else to say this, so if you've got a better way to put this down let me know the catalog anyone anyone have an idea anyone do the math in your head we sing on average at least four songs and depending on some some Sundays we may sing five songs on a Sunday morning that does not include what may go on in a Sunday school class or what may happen in Wednesday night prayer meeting or another Bible study or something so we're just talking about Sunday morning if we sang four, four songs every Sunday, how many songs would we sing in the course of a year? 52 times four. I did it ahead of time. I'm not this good at math. It'd be 208. If we averaged five songs a Sunday, that would put us, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 260 or something. Over 200 songs that we will sing together in the course of one year. When you consider that you have 200 plus opportunities to sing, we ought to be going back to the Word and saying, 
what does the word address and what can we address in our songs that covers the full range of God's character and attributes, the full range and experience of the Christian life? In other words, if God in his word gives us passages of scripture that are celebratory, we ought to have songs that are celebratory. If he gives us in his word passages of scripture, truths, even formal songs and poems that are meditative and reflective, we ought to have songs that are meditative and reflective. And if God in his kindness to weak, suffering people has also given to us songs in a minor key, we ought to sing songs in a minor key. Sad Christians need something to sing as well. And so in all of this, what we're tr simply trying to say, when, as, to the best of our ability with God's help, with, by God's grace, we are a people who want to sing and want to sing well and we want to sing with genuine sincerity and joy and delight because of who God is and what he's done for us. But we always want to be coming back and saying, because of the fact that it's so easy to get off track or it's so easy to misjudge or misinterpret, we always want to be coming back and saying, we're not looking at just this Sunday coming up. We're thinking about the long term. This is not a sprint. It's a marathon, if the Lord would keep us here. What is going to be most beneficial and helpful for us as a congregation when we have years of singing to do with hundreds and hundreds of songs? Can we, by God's grace, give an adequate representation of the things that ought to be going into our hearts and minds so that we encounter, when we encounter those difficulties or those high points, we have a song to match those experiences or those difficulties? And so that as Edgewood grows and transitions from one generation to another, the next generation coming up is not going to be left with a blank slate having to recreate new songs, but they have songs that they have already been drawing on and songs they've already been working on. We want to sing the praises of the God who saved us, and we want to do it with joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for those times in which your spirit is stirring and moving our hearts and minds, giving us the ability to see more clearly who you are and what you've done through the truth of your word. And we thank you for those times when our hearts do sing almost naturally in response to your goodness and your glory. We thank you also for those times when our hearts are slow and sluggish, that because we are still singing in your spirit, because of our union with Christ, that you still accept weekly sung songs and do not turn us away. But we ask that you would not leave us there, that you would continue to set our feet on firm ground so that we can sing a new song to the Lord. We ask, Father, that as you continue to have your work in our midst, that as we see the glories of Christ more clearly, that our songs would be deeper and more varied, 
that it would accurately represent and bear witness to your truth, and that all that we do would be done in the Spirit for your praise and glory and for our mutual edification together. We pray this for the sake and the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen.